0: All right, welcome back to the podcast. And there are so many good things in this episode. I'm excited for you to hear this. Please welcome Pastor Shauna Songer Gaines to the podcast. And she is the lead pastor of Trevecca Nazarene Community Church down in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And we talk about uh, lifelong learning and submitting ourselves to the process. Uh, there, there are gonna be several links in the show notes. So I want you to check those out. There's a couple of books that we mentioned in the podcast. I'm also gonna put in there what I'm reading because we talk about this idea of lifelong learning and reading better stuff. So I thought I'll just share some of the things I'm reading right now. And I'm also gonna share a link to University Press Publishing House in case you're not familiar with that, Publishing House. Uh, so many good resources there that you'll want to check out. Um, we also talk about this idea of the relationship between the church and the educational institution and how we can you know hold hands and work together to really be uh, to to make the to help the kingdom be all that it can be um, and then we have a discussion about American holiness, the difference between American holiness and Wesleyan holiness and why that matters to how we preach. So if you find yourself in a church or a congregation that is a Wesleyan denomination, um, this I, I, hope, I hope that that part of the conversation helps you or at least gives you some things to think about and chew on for a little bit. Um, anyway, lots of good things. We have some more, I have some more episodes coming up, just excited about some of the interviews that are coming and, and some solo episodes. So thanks for hanging out and coming back. Uh, Please feel free to share this episode with a friend if you find it interesting, helpful, encouraging, all of the above. So enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories instead of just complaining about it. What if we flood the airwaves with something different? It was great hearing you at camp meeting um, since you were just preached uh, on our district and I got lots of positive feedback from your preaching from my congregation. So um,
1: oh, we had a great time. That is an awesome family camp. Oh, our family loves family camp too. We grew up, I grew up going to a family camp in central California. In fact, that was where I first really felt a sense of call to ministry when I was 14 years old at a family camp. Um, there's something about the intergenerational piece of those kinds of camp meetings that I think is really powerful. Um, so yeah, we had a blast with y'all. It was a good time.
0: I had a lot of new Nazarenes, new Christians, new Nazarenes. So uh, if, if they come back and they have lots of positive things to say,
1: I'm like, oh, that was a good campaign. (laughs) Oh, and I gotta say, Joanne, I hope you keep this in the podcast. You're doing really great ministry with, I, it was, it was such a breath of fresh air to see a church with so many new believers, you know, like, um, And it's refreshing preaching to new believers who just, who haven't been in the church. I mean, I love folks that have been in the church their whole lives. They are the foundation of our faith. I'm so grateful, but man, to preach to like brand new believers that are still cutting their teeth on some of this and you're doing really, really good work in ministry. And I just, I thank God for you and for your church and um, what your team there is doing. It's pretty exciting. Thanks. Yeah. I've got a good team. We, We do. We have a great team.
0: And you are serving at Trevecca Community Church.
1: Yeah. Now that's not the name of the town, right? No. So Trevecca is the name of the university, the Trevecca Nazarene University, and um, here in Nashville, Tennessee, we are, as the crow flies, two miles from the the heart of downtown Nashville. So we're just oh. kind of right, um, near downtown Nashville on the Murfreesboro corridor. We are a church that was planted on the campus uh, so that they would have a kind of campus church to really create a sense of neighborhood here on the Tribeca Hilltop. And it's a really unique community where we've got the university, but we also have a retirement center called the Tribeca Towers. And then there's also a health care center, Tribeca Healthcare and Rehabilitation Center. So it really does feel like this sort of hilltop community. That's been the vision of it to see students and retirees and, you know, healthcare workers uh, really living in Christian community together. And so to have the church kind of right at the, at the heart of it all, in fact, the church is right at the entrance to the Trevecca community. And, and, and so we kind of see ourselves as, a bit of a, a gateway for the Trevecca community into the community of Nashville. So now I'm curious, your medical center. So is that
0: affiliated with? Is it? Was it? Did you just adopt the name, or is it affiliated?
1: Um, the church kind of birthed this. How did that? Yeah, I think originally it was folks deeply connected with um, with Trevecca University. It no longer is. There's new leadership, new directors over there, and there's a little bit more disconnect these days from the, the kind of Nazarene uh, community here. Um, The Towers also was long time uh, led by a wonderful Nazarene family, the Joneses, and they have recently sold it. Uh, But the new directors over at the Towers have really taken an interest in in wanting to still be a part of the Tribeca community. And so it'll be interesting to see in the future how we keep that sense of community as there's new leadership and um, new visions for, um, you know, what those entities are going to do um so that's something kind of yet to be told in the future for us to figure out
0: <laughs> yeah that's interesting when leadership changes over and what happens we we had a relationship with an upper elementary school in our community and then i know probably about a year before the pandemic they got all new administration like new principals all that and that. so we almost yeah. had to start over building that relationship again with them Because, you know, they came in not knowing anything about us. Who are you? (laughs) Why are you here? It'll be interesting to see what, what do you, what happens, you know, going forward then and how that community will work.
1: Yeah. And I think there's something about leading missional churches that, you know, hopefully we are sort of always about that work of um, learning about our neighbors and then our neighbors change. And so we learn about them again and build those relationships and, Um, that is kind of a never ending spiral, (laughs) but it also, I think tells us like, Hey, don't get, don't get comfortable and complacent. Keep pursuing Jesus, following after the spirit into our neighborhoods. Don't ever assume that you've got it figured out. Um, so I think there's something healthy about that too.
0: Yeah. With a neighborhood, the actual, the actual neighborhood that we live in, um, is lower income. And so when we went through the recession and housing in Michigan was, was crazy. Like houses in our neighborhood were selling for like $15,000. And so, wow. they, so people who wanted to do real estate went in and bought them all up and then turned them into rentals. So we have like all our neighbors are all renters. And so it's like every six months or a year we have new neighbors. And so, so you're the lead pastor at Trevecca yeah. and you, you're multi-staff. And so how did that end up? Like, how did you, how did you come to Trevecca? You've been there what, almost three years, two and a half.
1: Yeah, it'll be three years in December. Um, so my family moved to Nashville six years ago. Uh, my husband and I had been co-pastoring a congregation in Bakersfield, California, and he'd finished up his PhD in theological studies. And uh, Trevecca had approached him about a, an open theology position. And at the time, just seemed like the craziest thing in the world to do. I mean, we were both born and raised in California. I had never been to the state of Tennessee, let alone the city of Nash. I don't, I don't think I'd ever been to any Southern states, actually, now that I think of it. Um, except Florida, which I don't know if that counts. (laughs) I don't don't think so. So it just, it felt like a total unknown. And for me, I knew it it would involve leaving a pastoral ministry that I deeply loved. So, but we just really felt this deep sense that this was what God was calling us to do and knowing that that was going to mean a huge sacrifice. And, So we packed up and moved out here to Nashville six years ago, and I spent then our first year here in Nashville basically as a stay-at-home mom with my two kids. Um, They were two and three at the time when we first moved, and I got to do, it was a fun year in a lot of ways. I did some writing and speaking and traveling, and I was still blogging back then, but didn't have any kind of official pastoral role or capacity. And, um, and honestly, I didn't know if I would ever be able to hear. Um, there were a couple of pretty rough experiences with congregations that, that my name was a part of their, of their search process and was pretty much told that um, a woman probably wasn't going to be a real serious candidate in, in the process. And just grappling with that and thinking, goodness, did I just move my family out here to sort of doom myself to not be able to to serve in this way that I love so deeply. And so towards the end of our first year here, just through a, a real prayerful process of trying to essentially give up what my plans and designs had been for us moving to Nashville, um, at, at the end of that, was invited by Dr. Dan Boone here at the university to step into the role of university chaplain. That was out of the blue, one of those um, just feeling like God had really opened a door that we had never even knocked on. Uh, deeply grateful for that, and and since we felt the sense of you know yes we were God called us here to this university, and so if this is how God's asking me to serve, yeah, this is where God called us, and. I just loved that. I served as chaplain for two and a half years and um, loved star- serving the student body. And as I was serving, um, had been called in the search process when Tribeca Community Church, which is the church that Tim and I have worshiped in since we moved to Nashville for the last six years. This has been our home church. And it uh, was called about letting my name go forward in the search process for the church. And I initially actually said, no. Um, I said, that's a uh, crazy. I've only been chaplain a couple of years and uh, I just can't imagine making a transition right now. Well, I, I started into my doctor of ministry program, which our one of our very first classes we took was really about spiritual discernment and spiritual friendship, discerning the voice of God, uh, which Joanne, I know is one of your questions that you <laughs> were already kind of setting me up for. So maybe. Yeah. maybe. And they just took us through some pretty incredible processes for being attentive to the Spirit and really trying to discern the voice of God, attending to all of the faculties that God has given us for discernment. And I didn't realize how limited I had really been in thinking about how you find the voice of God, right? I I kind of felt like, well either God just gives you this lightning bolt in the head where you just are kind of struck down by God and you know exactly what you're supposed to do, or you basically make your pros and cons list and pick what you think is best and trust that God's going to be in it. And, and so just going through a process of recognizing, wow, God actually God actually works in and through our sense of desires and longing and and shapes those desires and longing towards things of the kingdom. And God uses our emotions uh, as ways to to be our teacher and teach us um, what what God's saying to us and and how we're responding to the voice of God. And, and, And so just realizing like there were this whole kind of set of faculties that I had closed off from the discernment process and I had a friend in the program as I was just sharing like, wow, I, I can't believe, you know, and, and I had shared that I was just asked about putting my name for it at this church. And I so quickly shut it down because I thought, well, no, that doesn't make sense on the pros and cons list. And I just closed the door. And that friend said, well, what are you longing for these days? Like, what, what are the longings that, Not just that you things that you want for you, but what are the longings that God is giving you these days? And I spent a long time processing and pondering that question, and finally met up with a spiritual director and said, "I'm, "I'm really wrestling with this, and and thinking about this door that I just closed to possibly pastoring this church." And and she said, "Well, why why do you think you might open that door? You know, I I know you love your job as university chaplain, and and that's been going great, but but why?" do you keep coming back to this? Why, what do you think the longing is deep down that won't let you walk away from this? And I just sort of burst into tears, almost shouting at her. And I said, babies and old people and weddings and funeral and baptisms and communion and just, you know, all of the, the things of the church life that I had been longing for, in, in chaplaincy ministry, and, and even wanting to be able to be that kind of pastoral presence here on the university campus, right. and uh, so that was kind of a game changer for me, and um, and it allowed me to put my name back in the process. And that was about three years ago, and a lot has changed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, now you're lead pastor, and and you have staff that you oversee, and what? So, what does your role look like as a lead pastor with you know, multiple staff. And not only that, but it's an established church. I mean, that Trevecca has been around for a,
1: a how, older, I don't know how old is the congregation? Congregation is 78 years old. Okay. So, yeah, um, it's, you know, uh, it's an established congregation with a lot of leaders in the congregation. So we've got several retired district superintendents, two retired general superintendents in the congregation, wow. a lot of retired pastors um, or people who are, you know, uh, have theology degrees. I mean, it is an interesting group to um, to lead and, and shepherd, but th- there's, uh, there's also folks who are two months sober and figuring out how to put their life back together, and folks who, uh, I mean, just all walks of life, you know, college students, people who uh, live in the retirement center. And it's just a, a pretty diverse, incredible group to, to get to pastor. And um, yeah, our our staff, we've got a wonderful team uh, here on the staff. It, we really are, are a pretty collaborative team. And so trying our best to, to work together, trust and empowering them. I feel like one of my most important roles, um, is to uh, to pour into leaders, um, and so to, to pour into our staff, especially I think spiritually, to make sure that um, they feel re- really filled and empowered to do what God has called them to do. Right? They are uh, they're here for a reason. They're here because God called them too, just like I am. And so my job isn't to make sure that they're well, it is to make sure that they're doing what they need to be doing, <laughs> but it's not to tell them necessarily how to do that or micromanage it for them, but to really f- make sure that their cup is filled and um, that they feel empowered and filled with the spirit and um, to, to do what God's called them to do. Uh, that's it, one of the great joys actually is getting to work with the staff team and and to really pour into them. They're, they're pretty, pretty awesome group. and And we like working together.
0: What it's an interesting dynamic. So you have professors who are sitting there right with theology degrees, obviously. And then you have new believers. That's a huge gap. Like I even thought about that when you were preaching at camp meeting, I thought, Oh, I thought about who was sitting there listening. I'm like, that would be a lot. I have people in my congregation who are mature believers who my uh, teaching pastor, she's working on her demon right now. So it's not like I don't have that, but I have a, I would say the majority are new believers or People who were previously unchurched. So, didn't really grow up in the church. And so, in some ways, I can pretty much preach at the same place. So, how just talk about maybe your process? Like, how do you do that? And also, how do you not let it intimidate you? I'm like, I'm going to assume like we all get intimidated. Oh, yeah. There's, <laughs> <I mean, laughs> I mean, There's always somebody out there who intimidates <laughs> us. So, I guess I shouldn't be presumptuous and assume that.
1: Yeah, well, and and, you know, I think um, the more you build relationships with people, suddenly it's not like, that's H. Ray Dunning, who wrote Grace, Faith, and Holiness, and pretty soon it's, that, that's Ray. And I know how he loves and cares for his wife, Betty, and how much he wants to see his grandkids follow Jesus and be a part of the church. And, um, and so what when you build relationships, that really changes the intimidation factor. And you recognize that we are all um, following after Jesus. Uh, and so I, I think that that's pretty key. I, when I think about just preaching to that kind of scope of um, experience, knowledge, uh, faith background, one of the things I love, great storytelling. I read a lot of novels, watch a lot of movies. I love kind of that long form of storytelling where someone has really thought about how to tell a great story. And one of the things that I, I think I love most is reading um, or, or watching a children's movie or reading kind of a popular level novel that tells an awesome story. But I'm also picking up on um, all the nuanced layers that, that maybe, I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but maybe you're just uh, some readers aren't picking up on or certainly like I watch movies with my kids all the time. And they're eight and nine, and I know that they're not picking up on, oh man, there's some philosophical influences in here that I know that they're getting on and, oh, they're referencing this. And my eight and nine-year-old aren't picking up on that, but they are picking up on some of the bigger, broader themes about bravery or courage or kind, you know, they're still picking up on those and they're really enjoying it in the process, right? So when I think about preaching, I think that some of the hardest work we have to do is to think like those storytellers um, that are able to layer and nuance uh, the story of the gospel in such a way that there is kind of something for everyone. Um, I I hope this isn't (laughs) controversial to say, but me and my kids this last year spent the year reading Harry Potter. I know that there are are some who are not big Harry Potter fans. We, we are. I'm just going to come right out and say Probably my oh. listeners are just fine with Harry Potter <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and it's just been so, I read the whole series right as soon as I finished seminary, basically, when I realized, oh, I don't have to read for school anymore. Cool. Right. Um, and, and I read it back in my 20s, and I loved it. Then I just read it again with my kids and it was such a cool experience. And I'm picking up on all kinds of like resurrection themes Mm -hmm. and um, all kinds of, of really cool stuff that I know my kids are not fully picking up on, but they are so inspired by these characters now who they Want to emulate, they want to be brave like Harry, they want to be uh wise like Hermione, they wanna be, you know, they, they they want to be the kinds of qualities that they see in these characters, even though maybe they're not picking up on some of those other nuances that I might be picking up on, right? I'm 37 and they're eight and nine, and we're all loving it. Now, I can't say that every time I preach a sermon, everybody's loving it every time. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true, but I do try to think like that, like a long form storyteller who wants to tell a great story that anybody can join us for the journey and whatever you pick up in the journey along the way is going to be okay. I think it also like it kind of forces you to, to release feeling like, man, I need everybody to get this. And and feeling like you have to preach to teach every single time, making sure everyone understands what you mean by every single thing, and sometimes you have to, you have to let some of that go, as I found that some of our longtime Christians actually really appreciate very simple definitions. Um, yeah. that are thoughtfully crafted, right? Or I've had some folks come up to me who have been believers their whole lives, Nazarenes their whole lives, that will come up and say, wow, I really appreciated that definition of sanctification or that definition for sin or that. And so when you can carefully craft a very simple definition that brand new Christians can walk onto and say, oh, okay, that's what she means. But also people who have been in the faith a long time can say, wow, I've used that word so often but that's a very helpful way of thinking about what we mean when we say that word. Um, So I I think that's another helpful thing when you're preaching to a really broad audience.
0: The storytelling really is like, you have to use stories. I
1: don't, I don't know how people preach
0: and they're not readers. Where do you find your stories? If you don't read, if you don't read, it's so important to do that. I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday and it was talking about writing and storytelling and those kind of things. Uh, And he said, um, I guess, apparently the uh, Barack Obama was originally starting out in politics uh, because he had been a law professor for so long that when he would do his, you know, whatever his campaigns, he just told them as lectures. And Mm. he said, what was interesting is he actually, um, as he, started visiting different churches and hearing how different preachers uh, preach, he actually pulled from the pastors and the way that we are storytellers. And he started realizing how much story influenced the way that we thought and the way that we believed and obviously the way that we voted. And it completely radically changed the way that he did his campaign. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe... Maybe we're more influential than we realize with our storytelling and not, not just obviously he was influenced by it, but the people in our congregation are influenced by the way that we tell our stories and that the details, the, the Greek words, the Hebrew words, like those are all fascinating. But if we can't weave them together in a story in a way, that's going to capture people's hearts. Um, Which really, I mean, that, that really is the heart of our denomination anyway, like it was all about, you know, speak to the heart as much as to the head.
1: You know, I, I love that. I love that, Joanne. And one of the ways that I think about, because it's still important for us to do study, you know, to really understand historical context and rhetorical structure. I mean, all these things are still, I think, really important for us to study and know as preachers. But the way I like to think about it is all that study that you do. If you think about putting on a play, and and I have a theater background, and I used to feel guilty for thinking about bringing that theater background into the pulpit because it's like, well, preaching isn't a performance. I used to just beat myself up all the time. Oh my goodness, like, oh, I don't want to be a performer in the pulpit. This is sharing the word of God. It's different, and and it is. But when you think about it, like a storyteller, where man, scripture, man, curtains open, cue the orchestra, let's tell a story, right? Um, and so when I think about putting together a play, all those details that we're reading in and commentaries and, and uh, different authors that were, we're referencing, the Greek and Hebrew study that I hope we're doing in terms of parsing words and verbs, and that creates the backdrop it creates the scenery on which the sermon then can communicate right so like the sermon is kind of like the the actor out in the front and and the actual words that they're saying but all those details sort of create the scenery you can't really build a sermon just around you know, parsing out a Greek verb for people. Um, right. but, but that's important for you to know because that kind of cr- constructs the background and scenery. And and maybe sometimes you reference it and that that can be helpful. That doesn't take center stage. Does that make sense? So I, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's kind of a helpful metaphor for me to latch onto is more just thinking about it in terms of creating the backdrop, creating the scenery rather than than being center stage.
0: Yeah. Scripture writers. I mean, they were great storytellers. I mean, they told, you know, it, it communicated obviously to their culture and in, in that in that day and time. But even still, I mean, it communicate like I remember reading the first time first time I read through the Old Testament, and when I get to when when Aaron died, and they you know they take off they take all his garments off and they place him on his son. And I'm like just weeping. I'm like, wow. why did you kill off one of my favorite characters? <laughs> like like forgetting, like, no, he actually has to die. We all die. It's a, it's part of the process. But uh, yeah, they were great storytellers. I want to think about that idea. I, I want to go back to the, I still want to get into your call because you already mentioned it a little bit, but we'll talk about that first. Because you started, after you got there to Trevecca and you were kind of weren't really doing anything, and then you started your d So just talk about the process of how did you discern, not just how did you discern, but what was your motivation to go and get your demon? Like, not everybody's going to do that. Not everyone's going to get a master's. Not everyone's going to get a doctorate. And I think that there are a lot of clergy out there, not just women, but I would say especially women, um, wrestling with, well, how much money am I going to spend on a degree? Because I could have my, you know, MDiv. I could have my, my demon or my PhD, and I may. You know, I may never move beyond a part-time associate role or something like that. So I guess like, those are some of the things that I know are weighing on my listeners. And I'm
1: going to guess that you had to weigh some of those things yourself. Yeah. Um, One of the ways that Tim and I both have talked about education is wanting to be prepared to say yes to whatever God might call us to, right? And so, in as much as education can prepare us to give our best yes to whatever it might be, um, I just I think it's it's wonderful. (laughs) Um, For for me, choosing to do the demon, um, you know, I was chaplain at the time when I started it, and so partly I was just in an an academic environment and wanting to pursue more education. As I'm preaching often to not only students but also faculty and administrators and. Um, Just wanted to really kind of hone that, that craft. Uh, But now then I'm still in the demon program and I've uh, become pastor and I'm still deeply grateful that I'm doing this, (laughs) that that I'm really kind of submitting myself to the, I think so education is a process that much like discipleship, we sort of have to submit ourselves to we can all talk about, oh, we should be lifelong learners and we should always be reading and going to seminars. And, and yes, we should always be doing that. But let me ask, where do you find the stuff that you're reading? Is it just whoever you're following on Twitter? Um, is it, you know, where do you find the conferences that you're going to? Is it whatever kind of makes the biggest splash? Like in education, you have to submit yourselves to a process that have been constructed by people who really understand Development, curricular design—who um, have worked with other pastors in the field—and then you also submit yourself in the DMIN at least to a cohort of people who journey with you, and they really become, in many sense, you are you are co-teachers for one another. Iron sharpening iron brings you together with pastors who you would not typically um, work with, and and it really becomes kind of an iron sharpening iron type of experience. I think it also. Yeah, the the process of submitting yourselves then to to a curricular design designed by people who like really know what they're doing. It means you're going to be reading stuff that you wouldn't read things that nobody who you follow on Twitter has been assigned and it's going to challenge you and it's going to make you ask hard questions. And so just for that alone, like forget about just like the career path stuff that education opens up, which it does, I think it does open more doors, more possibilities, more options. But just in terms of developing as a person, as a as a pastor, I think it's a it's a really rich experience. And, and I'm very grateful for it. And I also say that knowing that it there's a whole lot of privilege wrapped up in that too, um, in terms of having the extra income to be able to put into education finding the time in your life to devote to education, especially I think about bivocational pastors who are working full time and pastoring a church. And, and uh, man, I just, where do you squeak education into that? Right. Right. Um, especially a formal process where you've got papers due and just the stress of academic deadlines. So one of the things that I've seen other folks do is actually reach out to educators and say, hey, would you mind sharing with me your reading list? Would you mind sharing with me your syllabi for this class so that on at their own pace? And I think you'd be surprised at how many educators are thrilled to do that. It's not like given away for free. It's not the same as actually rolling in the class, but right. I think a lot of educators are really honored that there are pastors who appreciate the work that they do in constructing those syllabi, putting together those reading list and as you know married to a professor I can tell you he agonizes over the book lists that he puts together for each class because they're so carefully layered to make sure that there's different voices each speaking to a different kind of aspect of, of that class Um, and so you know if if education if there are barriers to education that is another great way to just continue growing and developing as a person as a Christian and and as a pastor
0: yeah I I think we should all be reading some of those deeper books. I know that for some, you know, it comes easier than others. And we do need to be challenging ourselves beyond um, beyond that. And I think too, since most of my listeners are would be in the Wesleyan Arminian camp, if you're just reading what comes up on the, you know, the top of the christian Christian book distributor list, <laughs> yeah, it's probably not going to best inform your theology uh if you're you know if you're in a wesleyan armenian denomination and so uh grabbing on hold of some of those other uh if somebody's ta- like you said if someone's taking a class and yeah cheating uh, cheating off of their syllabi <laughs> looking on their paper uh encouraging people to do that i'd love to see i'd love to see more of our districts having like book clubs and stuff like that for yeah where we could especially now that we have zoom and do some of those kind of pieces where you're reading, just reading the same things and, and sharing what you're learning from it and what you're getting out of it and wrestling with it and uh, taking up a notch. And sometimes it's easier. I think if we, if we have like book clubs and stuff like that, it would be easier to read some of those more challenging pieces of work because, you know, otherwise you just read it and you're like, this is
1: boring.
0: (laughs) But you know, if you're reading it to discuss it, then it takes it to a whole new level.
1: I love that. Our district is doing that right now with Priscilla Pope-Levinson's Models of Evangelism, where there's kind of a district-wide book study um, going on on that. I think that's a a great thing for districts to do. You know, another thing, Joanne, if you don't mind, just because we're we're on the track of education, I think something that I'm really sort of burdened for for the future of clergy preparation and the future of the church is just the relationship that we have with local church uh districts clergy and um educational institutions right and obviously i serve at a very unique uh local congregation that's on the campus of one of our educational institutions um but one of the things particularly that trevecca the the legacy i think that trevecca has really blessed the church of the nazarene with is in a time when the Church of the Nazarene was really wrestling with, are we going to be primarily an American holiness denomination um, or dig more into our Wesleyan holiness roots, um, and was rather torn, kind of a bit theologically adrift and and rather torn, um, Trevecca's faculty played a huge role in really boosting that Wesleyan holiness voice in the Church of the Nazarene and saying, this is This is who we are and this is who God has called us to be, Um, not to the diminishment of some of the American holiness roots as well, but to make a case for the theological tradition of Wesley that's vital to even the expression of like American holiness, right? Like if, if, if you lose a theological underpinning, then some of the expressions of American holiness can just sort of go off the rails. And so Trevecca, I think, has given a great gift to the church um, in in really solidifying that more Wesleyan holiness um, tradition for us. Well, well, now we're kind of at another crossroads, uh, generations later, where I think the churches, the Church of the Nazarene, particularly. I don't know if your if your listeners are also from a more broadly kind of Wesleyan um, background or more broadly evangelical background, but. And I think a lot of the Christian world is struggling with this right now, with a lot of new resurgences of fundamentalism. I know women in ministry are experiencing a lot more pushback the more we see a rise in fundamentalism. So I think that there's another kind of struggling here. And if we just totally cut ourselves off from educational institutions because we're suspicious of what they might be teaching and you know, what those book lists are, well, man, call them up and ask them for their book lists (laughs) And, and read some of those books. And even if you don't agree with them, like trust that these folks have been called to serve the church just like you have. We've got to have a partnership between the local churches and our educational institutions so that both of them can function well. I think sometimes educational institutions can feel a bit disconnected from the life of the local church I think about too, as, as a preacher, it's been hard in pandemic where I don't always see the people who are in my church, right? Some are in the building, but right. some are online. I need to remember who all those people are so that I'm speaking to all of my people. Well, well, the school is like that too. I think we craft education. We want to craft education to serve local churches but we, we need to be in relationship with local churches so that the education really is serving those purposes. I mean, it's, so it's right. a two-way kind of relational street. Um, but for anybody out there who's considering education, but maybe has heard some of the tension that there might be with our, our academic institutions, or maybe have even been told, I know that there's folks that have been told like, oh, don't go to one of those schools that's just going to fill your head with you know, crazy ideas. And, um, and, and I just want to say, like, can we just trust each other? You know, like, can we just, w- just trust each other um, and have faith that God really is using people who have dedicated their lives to being educators um, and to thinking through, uh, yeah, curriculum development and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um so anyways, a little bit of a soapbox there, Joanne. My That's op- okay. But just as we're talking about education and whether or not to pursue education, I know I've heard from a lot of women who have been disparaged um, in in pursuing degrees that could be really helpful to them because of some of the tension I think that there is right now um, with our educational institutions.
0: Yeah. Well, I was raised Catholic. so And then my husband's oldest brother, he and his wife came to faith in the United Methodist Church. About a year before my husband and I got married, my husband and I are both adult converts, so my early roots of faith were in a more holiness or Wesleyan type bent because you know my brother-in-law's feeding, feeding me books, you know because um, he he went to Asbury Theological Seminary, he's a chaplain down in Ohio, so he's you know he's feeding me books, and then of course I had influence you know for four years as a new believer, I was in the Catholic Church, so I was reading desert mothers and fathers, you know, and so had that influence, which is one of the things I think that really appealed to me of the Nazarene church because with that Wesleyan bent, you know, and you made that comment of Wesleyan holiness versus American holiness. I feel like maybe that is the unspoken tension that we have been feeling, especially in the last 10 years or so. Will you just speak a little bit to kind of like, what is the, maybe the def- delineating factor or delineating mark between Wesleyan holiness and American holiness. I I know I haven't asked you that up front. I didn't ask you that ahead of time. So I know you're like,
1: and Joanne, I will do my best. uh, Don't grade me on this answer. I won't. I won't. Uh, Yeah. So uh, the, the Wesleyan holiness tradition, obviously going back to John Wesley, John Wesley was a pastoral theologian. Uh, he wasn't a theologian in terms that he wasn't a professor at a university or whatever, but anyone who has studied his sermons, letters, treatises, he truly was a pastoral theologian. And he was drawing from um, uh, not only kind of the, the standard uh, Christian tradition texts uh, of, of his time, but he he also was an avid reader of Greek and studied some of the Eastern fathers and some of the Greek thinkers that were probably not a part of, and, and also he was an Anglican, right? So when you think right. about the Reformation, we often think about you've got Protestants and you've got Roman Catholics and that those two separated. Well, Anglicans are this weird <laughs> like middle ground. Um, and so he, he comes from the, the Anglican tradition He's reading these Eastern Fathers then as a a part of the Anglican tradition and and brings sort of the, the theological depth of those Eastern roots, which those Eastern roots, one of the teachings of the Eastern Fathers is about, one word to describe it is theosis, and another term for it is divination. It's this God has become like us so that we can become like God, right? I think that really shaped Wesley's understanding of sanctification and holiness. It was, in a sense, us becoming so much like Jesus, like as much like Jesus as we possibly can come in this lifetime. And it was also deeply rooted, obviously, in this theology of love that Mildred Bang's Wine writes about in the 70s, and this sense of being so filled with the love of God that there is no room for sin. So that deeply kind of formed the way that he would preach and teach about sanctification and holy living. The American holiness tradition, and gosh, I'm nervous to even say this because you might, I've got folks in my church that really are experts on the American holiness tradition. I am probably not going to do it justice. Um, But the American holiness tradition there were a lot of different theological influences a part of it. There were some more reformed backgrounds that were a part of the, it was much more about revivalism, right? So the American holiness tradition was much more uh, a revivalistic tradition with a lot of theological streams feeding into that American pool. That, That really pulled all these together was a sense of what I would describe as American pragmatism, so you've got yeah. Phoebe Palmer who writes about the shorter way, right? And it essentially like there is this kind of what I almost talk about as a production line of sanctification. And that's not doing justice to Phoebe Palmer because Phoebe Palmer truly is a gift to the church and there are some deep riches in her works, but she sort of lays out this, here's the shorter way, like for you to, to get to sanctification um, and that people shouldn't have to basically struggle their whole lives in sin Let's let them live, you know, more of their life in the fullness of sanctification. So she's really wanting to give this gift to the church, but in doing so kind of infuses that sense of American pragmatism in the process. So when I talk about the division between American holiness and and the Wesleyan holiness, I'm not saying that disparagingly against um, American holiness. I think that there are some great things that the American holiness tradition has added into the Christian tradition. But I think that there's always a danger with that, that bent towards pragmatism, the efficiency with which we think we, you know, can get somebody to an altar and and get them sanctified. And I think there's always a danger in in leaning too much into those more kind of pragmatic roots, especially when those roots have been cut off from the theological um, kind of grounding of this idea of theosis—this that God has become like us in Jesus—so that in Jesus we can become holy like God, right? <laughs> like right. when we're cut off from those theological roots and we're only left with the pragmatism of getting sin out of our lives. And maybe Joanne, now that I've talked around and around and around, that's a, <laughs> a little bit more where it comes down to, right? Is I think in the in the Wesleyan tradition, there's much more of a positive emphasis on what God is doing to transform our life into the image of God in which we are made, right? Right. So filling us with love, filling us with the spirit, empowering us to live holy lives here and now. And again, sort of maybe an an unfair reduction of American holiness is it's much more about the extraction of sin, of getting sin out. And again, these are my definitions. If, if people want to um, <laughs> take uh, take issue with that, it is fair game. I'm probably way oversimplifying all of that. Um, but I think that that's, the, the theological roots of the Wesleyan tradition had been uh, somewhat separated perhaps from the pragmatism of the American holiness tradition. And then the difference between that kind of positive vision of a holy life Rather than than just reducing it to the extraction of sin, those might be uh, two significant differences.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, getting God into us versus getting sin out, because um, you know even Jesus says, "Oh, you clean the house, but then it's just empty. And yeah. All you're going to do is become twice as much uh, a son of hell as you were before." Um, because it's right; it's about getting it's yeah. getting God into us, not so much as getting. Sin out. Um, because then that then we're just kind of left hollow and we want to be more like him. And that's enough. He says, What Matthew 10? Um, it's enough to be like the master. Yeah. Now oh. but, but we're oh, we really want to be, we want to be more. We want to be more, don't we? Yeah. It's is a real problem. We want to be more than we want to actually be the master instead of just be like yeah. the master. We could talk about that all day. That would be really exciting. Um, so let's but let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about your call because I want to back up to that. So you were 14 when you kind of started to sense this call. You grew
1: up in the church. Yeah. So my my dad's a Nazarene pastor. Um, in fact, my, my great grandfather, my mother's side was a Nazarene pastor who had started as a Methodist pastor and, and left the Methodist church uh, to become a part of this holiness group of Nazarenes. And um, so I, I grew up in the church and from a really young age, I just loved the things of God. I don't know how else to say it. And I'm not like, I wasn't just a holy kid from birth, but I, I really, I loved um, the story of scripture. I loved hearing my dad preach. And when I was a pretty young girl, um, there were maybe six years old. I don't know. I wouldn't have had the language of being called at that point. But I know somebody in our, a man in our church had asked, "So what do you want to do when you grow up?" And my answer was, "I want to be a preacher just like my daddy." and um, to which he had responded, "Well, you you might make a really good preacher's wife someday." And so my mom was there and overheard that. And she kind of pulled me aside and she said, Shauna, you will be whatever God calls you to be. <laughs> and so that was maybe my first time even thinking about like, what does God call me to be? But it wasn't until I was yeah about 14 um, that I really felt that sense of, um, of hearing a, a calling, feeling like my life was being directed towards um, this, this uh, a kind of singular uh, purpose of ministry. And it took a long time to sort out what that would be or what that would look like. There weren't a lot of examples of of women in ministry at that point. And it's funny how you can go from being six years old and thinking like, yeah, I could be a preacher like my dad. And then by the time you're 14, you look around and say, oh, I'm called to ministry, but you never even imagining that you could be a preacher. Like I could imagine it when I was six, but by 14, I'd been socialized enough that that's just not what girls do. Um, And so then from 14 on was more of, of of a relearning and deconstructing some of that social construction from six to 14 that had that had really depleted my imagination for what the call of God could look like in my life especially going to college um, at Point Loma at Nazarene University, which is where I went to school and getting to be exposed to strong women leaders and to powerful female voices who were preaching. um, That was just a a game changer for me, having those influences in my life. I'm I'm deeply grateful and, and always will be. And then the rest of the story. I think I've, I've told some of it, but um, met my husband when I was at Point Loma as well. And he also was called to ministry and we felt the sense of, gosh, well, what does that look like? Already I would wrestled through what it looked like to be a woman in ministry, but what does it look like to be married to someone who's also called into ministry? How does that work? And so early on, we just had to have a, a sense of really surrender and submission to Christ mutually, like mutual submission to Christ so that together we could pursue what God was calling us to. And somehow in every season of life, um, there has been no shortage of ministry for both of us. And I'm I'm grateful for that.
0: And yeah, there is no shortage and it's not coming anytime soon. It may not look the same, but now more than ever, our culture really needs to hear The Wesleyan message, uh, you know, and I will tell you that it seems like millennials and Gen Z are just primed for, and the unchurched in particular, are primed for the Wesleyan message, like preach. And, you know, my millennials and Gen Z hear this, they're like, how come other pastors don't preach like that? Because what, you know, obviously they're hearing more fundamentalist voices is what they're hearing. But then when they hear the Wesleyan message, they're like, I can do that. (laughs) They like they want it. They want it. So, I really do believe this is the day for mm. the Wesleyan Holiness preacher. Like this is our day. This is our time. Like we need more Wesleyan Holiness voices, ah. preaching, writing, doing podcasts. Like we just we need it. And I think it's time for us to.
1: And Joanne, you stepped up for <laughs> such a time as this. Oh man. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that there's something about exactly what you were describing too, about like getting more of God in, right? like being being so filled with the spirit, this um, spirit empowerment for holy living. I think it's something that Gen Z and millennials and, you know, both are, are very experiential. And I think I'm noticing this even more about Gen Z than millennials, but this sense of like, give me something to do. And and that's a great teacher and learner too, right? Even Gen Z, I and I don't consider myself an expert on Gen Z, but Gen Z grew up with a very different educational philosophy than I did. I'm you and I have talked about this. I'm an old millennial, I'm a geriatric millennial. I'm at the end of that spectrum. I grew up with a much more kind of standard curriculum um, some people might say that I'm still a millennial and they gave us trophies for showing up and you know whatever. But I think that the way that I was taught was it was still memorize this list of multiplication tables and memorize the, this list of facts and knowledge. And then um, whereas Gen Z, I'm seeing a big shift in curriculum design where it really is do this and then let's talk about it. Try this, count these, and, and then let's figure out what we're learning from that. Man, what a gift to think about discipleship like that. I think for too long, we thought to disciple people, we've got to get their butt in a chair and tell them what to think. What if instead we thought about it like, hey, let's invite people to experience the work of the spirit in the world and then say, all right, let's talk about what God is doing here and how God is shaping us. Let's look at scripture to see where do we see this in scripture the same way that we're seeing it in our life and world right now. So I feel like Gen Z is going to have a lot to teach us about discipleship, just growing up in that world of saying, hey, do this, try this, and and then let's learn from it and talk about it and grow so that when we do it the next time, we're even better. And um, I think that's a, a really cool mode of discipleship that we've only just started to really not even scratch the surface. I think for most churches, we really are still in the mindset that discipleship is, teaching brains right getting information into brain right. instead of welcoming the holy spirit to enliven enliven us to live like jesus right? i mean that's that's what god has gifted us with and i think that's at the heart of the wesleyan message like you're saying joanne and i do think it really connects with millennial and and gen z in a powerful way and i can't wait for Gen Z to be able to teach me a thing or two about discipleship and preaching.
0: It's, it's very, very much experiential. You know, when Jesus says your righteousness should surpass the Pharisees, like he actually meant it's supposed to change your life. Your righteousness should not just be information in your head. It should change your life. It should change the people around you. It should change systems. There yeah. should be a sh- a cultural shift that happens because of the righteousness of God that lives in you. And all of that is participatory, which yeah. is very much what Gen Z is all about. And we want to change those things. We don't want to just be
1: talking about it. We actually want to change them. I love that you use the language participatory. You know for a while, in talking about in Wesleyan circles, talking about the grace of God, there was a big term on the scene: responsible grace. That was a book that Randy Maddox wrote. That was kind of a big kind of Wesleyan theology book. And so people were talking about grace in t- terms of responsibility. That. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I was having
0: I had that happen to me yesterday in a podcast. <laughs> it was on my end. So thank you so much. Of course, that last part was really good, and I lost the last two minutes of it. <laughs> I think I just need to need a restart. Like I said, I had all those technical problems yesterday. We can't control it, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing. We got some, some really good stuff.
1: Well, Hey, thanks so much for having me on. This was really fun. It was good.